think we're going. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This is episode 68, and today I have the pleasure of talking to John Leonzo, who is the women's basketball assistant coach at Cedarville University. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. <laughs> I meant to ask you, did I pronounce your last name right? You were really close. It's Leonzo, like the name uh, Leonzo and then Zo at the end. Perfect. Perfect. So, John, tell us a little bit about your background. I, 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 I can't even guess on your age. Um, I, it seems like you graduated college fairly recently, within the last 10 years or so, from, mm-hmm. from your bio. But you've had extensive expe- basketball experience from a coaching standpoint. But if you can give a little bit of background to the audience, where you grew up, your your playing career, and then kind of how you got into in, into the coaching arena. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania, lived my entire life in Harrisburg, PA. And growing up there, where my family lived, it was just the thing to do was to play basketball. So if you're going to go outside and have a good time, uh, make friends and meet new people, you had to go play basketball. And so. My brother would drag me out there and force me to play with him, and I think I actually kind of latched onto it and even enjoyed it more than he did. So I played all throughout elementary school, all throughout middle school, into high school, and was never short on my love for the game, but definitely was never the most skilled player either. Uh, I think my best attribute was telling other people what to do as opposed to doing it myself. Uh, and so I knew from pretty much my sophomore year in college, in high school, rather, that I wanted to get into coaching in some way, shape, or form. So uh, about that time while I was playing, I knew I wanted to get into coaching, and I knew that if I was not going to play college basketball but get to get into college coaching, I was going to have a long road ahead of me and a lot of work to do. So uh, I just became very curious to learn as much as I could about basketball, and everyone that I knew or could even think of that was involved in college basketball in some way, I wanted to get in touch with and kind of pick their brain. Uh, And so what that basically started me down the path of was I would talk to one person and they would teach me something or tell me something. And then through learning that, I would find three or four other new things I need to learn more about. And it just kind of spiraled into me just trying to learn as much as I possibly can and interact with different people. And that was while I was in high school. So I would email uh, the lowest level of people I could find on like high major basketball staff. So like an example would be at VCU at the time they went to the final four Will Wade, who's now the head coach at LSU, was the video coordinator. And so I thought, well, this guy just looks at video all day. Why won't he respond to my email? And so, you know, he sent me their practice drills and just things like that. Uh, And through that, I just compiled all this information. uh, And I knew hopefully it would be beneficial for me later on in learning how to coach. But then I needed to actually be able to go out and get some practical experience in coaching as well. So when it came time for me to go to school, uh, to college, my brother went to Cedarville University. And I really had no intent to even look there to go to college. But I went to visit him uh, during the winter after our season had ended. And we went to a boys game there. And I was just astounded at number one, how good the team was. And then number two, how many people packed out this tiny little arena and just kind of the level of basketball that was division two. I was very ignorant to the skill level of division two basketball. I thought like those guys were super good. And I had thought if you were that good, you were probably playing like professionally overseas somewhere. I had no idea what I was getting into, but I thought, well, my word, if this is a small school with a really good team, maybe I can come here and volunteer my time with the men's staff and learn from them and kind of get involved that way. So I went to Cedarville for that reason. Um, And there's a lot of good reasons to go to Cedarville. I try to recruit athletes to come there all the time now. I love working there. 
Uh, and I'm really glad that basketball drew me there because then I grew in so many other ways as a student there outside of basketball. But basketball is definitely a big part of my experience while I was there. Um, Pat Eastep is the boys coach at Cedarville. He was very, very, very helpful to me. And as I demonstrated competency, he would give me more and more responsibility. Uh, and the biggest job I had for the men's team was doing all of their video work. And so, you know, we would have practice and I would clip up all the practice stuff and I could take, you know, an hour and a half practice and I'd subtract it into 30 clips and have it for the coach the next day or same thing for the games. And through doing that, I just learned how to watch basketball, how to look at things besides just the ball and just watching what the ball does, but watching things off the ball, noticing why things are happening and kind of understanding the game at a deeper level. And that was an opportunity that I don't think I would have had if I wasn't at Cedarville working for Coach Step. So as I was going through my four years doing that, I still had that same mentality to meet people, learn from people, and try to get plugged in and connected. Um, and then ultimately all of that culminated in me looking for graduate assistant jobs after graduating. And so I interviewed at a lot of different places and had a lot of different jobs offered to me. But for whatever reason, I did not feel right in my heart or in my gut taking any of those jobs. And I thought I was out of my mind because all I wanted to do was coach college basketball. And then I had a chance to do it. And I kept saying no to it, kept saying no to it, kept saying no to it. Um, so while I was in the process of saying no to all these jobs, I still had to find a way to make money. And so I would train uh, middle school players and high school players in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area on the side uh, just as a way to stay fresh, meet players. Uh, I knew if I wanted to get into coaching in college, I'd need to know who good players were so I could recruit them. So that was helpful for that as well. But I eventually just realized one day I'm, I'm working full time in basketball by accident on my own while I'm trying to find a different full time job in basketball. So I felt like I'm 22 at the time. You know, there's no better time for me to take a gamble, take a risk, and try to make a living doing my own thing. So that became John Leonzo Basketball, and that was me running my own camps, my own clinics, training players, selling books, videos, and different coaching resources online. Um, and I still do some of that, but ultimately I was doing all of that on my own and then eventually got a call from the basketball director at Spooky Nook, uh, which is a giant sports facility in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and they were asking me if I'd be willing to come in uh, as a private contractor and just run their basketball uh, programs and clinics and stuff. So I started doing that, and that eventually turned into a full-time job that same year at Spooky Nook, where I was doing camps, doing clinics, uh, doing all the basketball operations, including coaching a travel boys team and running their entire travel basketball program. And while I was coaching the travel boys team, that was what I loved the most. And I was like, I'm back at a practice with 10 to 12 guys. Um, and, you know, I'm coaching both sides of the ball. I'm coaching tactics. I'm coaching skills. And I really thought this is what I want to get back into. So as those thoughts were going on in my head, there was a coaching change on the women's side over at Cedarville University. And so Carrie Hoffman was the assistant coach. She got promoted to become the head coach. And I had gotten to know Carrie really well. Uh, while I was a student at Cedarville because the men's and women's team would travel together. Our practice times would overlap. I was always probably bugging Carrie, asking her to teach me different things uh, from some of the places that she had been in coaching. And then her husband, Jimmy, also mentored me while I was in school. So I spent a lot of time with her family outside of basketball as well. Um, and I had a, a deep level of, of respect for Carrie while I was a student. And I, I would always joke with Jimmy that if Carrie became a head coach and offered me a job, I'd quit whatever job I had and I would go immediately to work for her. And that's actually exactly what happened. Carrie asked me if I'd be interested to come out and be her assistant. 
And I quit my job at Spooky Nook three months into it, uh, which I felt bad about, but I knew that, you know, the opportunity I had at Cedarville was what I wanted to do. And so uh, I just finished my third year now at Cedarville working with the women's team, uh, working for Carrie. And I think that was probably the best decision I've ever made uh, to come back and do that because I, I could not be happier doing it right now. Wow, that's that's a quick journey, but a lot of detail there for sure. <laughs> but what What is it like being an assistant coach at a D2 school as opposed to a D1 school? I'm, I'm sure you've got some auxiliary duties in addition to to the basketball side of it. Yeah, definitely. So at most Division One schools, you have the head coach, you have four assistant coaches, and then you have two or three support staff roles. So a staff really can range anywhere from seven people to 10 people. Um, for us at our staff at Cedarville, we have Carrie, our head coach, we have me, and then we have a part-time, a two part-time coaches that volunteer their time as well, but they're really only there for practice and games. So there's a lot of things that have to take place that Carrie and I are just juggling back and forth between each other. Um, and I think what we do really well is we focus on the, what the most important things are because we can't do everything. So it's one of the things that are going to drive winning, drive results, help our girls grow their character. Uh, and that's what we double down on. So that looks like a handful of different things for me. A big part of my job is recruiting. Uh, and that's being connected to local players, local coaches, uh, and even people in other states and just trying to survey the talent and see who can fit our program uh, from a culture standpoint, who's going to enjoy the overall student experience at Cedarville, and then who's going to help our team win. That takes up a ton of my time. Um, a lot of that's done through me just being on the phone, talking with coaches, through me researching players on social media and on the Internet. Um, and then a big part of that also is me going out to watch players play. So that's a big part of my job, and I kind of uh, I spearhead all of that initially. And then as we kind of focus in on specific kids, I give the reins over to Carrie, and she wraps it up and, and kind of closes the deal, so to speak. So recruiting's a really big part of it. Um, in season, scouting's a really big part of my job. So, um, at, again, most Division One schools, you juggle or alternate the scouts. Each assistant kind of has their own team, and so you might be doing one scout every four games where for me, I've done 90 consecutive now. Um, it's 30 games a season. I've done every one of them. And I really, I love doing that. We're very fortunate to live at a time with a lot of technology. So like a lot of our opponent's film is already uploaded to the internet, already cut up for me. And so I can kind of analyze that and try to synthesize it into a small, detailed, um, efficient little piece of paper that helps our team win and kind of walk them through that prior to the game. I really enjoy that as well. And then there's just the general basketball day-to-day -day practice planning, um, prepping for games. I do a lot of that with Carrie. And then there's just a million small things that have to get taken care of, whether that's driving to games sometimes, figuring out what you're going to eat before and after the game, figuring out what jerseys to wear, who's washing them, why isn't the locker room clean today. Uh, there's just a thousand things that I can't even think of offhand, but I'm very fortunate that Carrie allows me to work on mostly basketball things. And uh, I think that that's one of her best attributes is she knows what's going to help us win. We focus all of our time there and some of the smaller things that a lot of schools do, we just kind of forget. Um, and again, I'm very blessed to have a boss that lets me do, do what I do. I love it. Nice. For those in the audience that don't know Cedarville, it's part of your recruiting pitch. How do you describe it? Yeah, Cedarville is very different. Uh, the first thing I'll, I'll tell girls whenever I call them on the phone is that Cedarville is not for everybody because it has a really unique niche. Uh, almost every private school in Ohio has some sort of religious background. 
and Cedarville is the same. It's a traditionally Baptist school. Um, but the faith experience at Cedarville is a really huge part of the overall experience. So it's not just a historical thing or a uh, kind of a roots thing for the school, but it's an everyday part of what you do on campus. So what that looks like uh, could be, say, for instance, you want to come to the school and do biology pre-med as your major. You would also take one Bible class a year where you're learning how to integrate your faith into your work, where you're learning the Old and New Testament in detail, just general theology in a way that's not, you know, high and lofty in a way that's still correct and, and still informative, but also very practical and, and, and applicable. So that's one of the things. Chapel's part of our day, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. We never have class. We always have chapel. And that's, you know, very unique to have a school that just hits pause on everything where every student goes to one spot and it's not graduation or not orientation, but you're doing that every single day. That's a, and that just kind of creates a really tight knit family atmosphere because everyone is there. And so I think when people come to our campus, even if they're just a general student visiting, what they end up seeing is people here are super nice. The campus is super safe and everybody here wants to help you grow. And I think the same thing can be said with our team. Um, we are really picky about who we bring into our program because we want the girls to be best friends, to get along, to run the race in the same direction as one another and support each other and challenge each other. And I think a lot of that's really easy to do at Cedarville because the school just attracts great people. So it makes a very fun environment to be in. It's awesome to help our girls grow, not just personally, not just academically, but also spiritually in their four years at Cedarville. And it just makes it really easy to coach because you have great people there that all want the right things and are there for the right reasons. And so a lot of the drama, a lot of the clicks, a lot of the problems we don't have to deal with. And, you know, again, I just feel very blessed to be at a school uh, that aligns with who I am and what I believe like Cedarville and also has a lot of really good things to offer academically, athletically, socially, and, and so on. And what's, what's the enrollment and what's the community like? Yeah, so Cedarville has 4,000 students, give or take, in their undergrad, and it just is continuing to grow every single year. Uh, in the community, it's very special. So what you have, uh, it's not the kind of school where everyone's going to show up on Monday, go to class through Friday, and then go back home on the weekend. Half our student bodies from out of state, and so the university spends a lot of time, energy, and resources into creating different student experiences that happen on the weekends. And that could be things such as, they have what they call alt nights where, you know, they may show a movie on campus, bring in giant inflatables, bring in food trucks and just kind of have like almost a street fair when the weather's nice outside. It works out great because a lot of times those are in sync with basketball games. So a lot of students can attend those. Um, but there's just a, a ton of things like that that are always taking place where they're encouraging students to interact with one another to, to, to get out of their dorm, to get off, you know, Netflix and Hulu or whatever and just spend time with one another and, it really creates a really cool, a really cool campus where it's impossible to hide. Everybody's really well connected and everyone truly does care about each other. Wow. It sounds like a great setup. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great place to be for sure. Yeah. And talk a little bit about the the quality of play at, at your level. Um, yeah, Ash, I, Ashland a couple of years ago won the national championship. So, it's got a strong tradition in Ohio, but what, what's the competition like and what's your league like? Yeah, the, the level of play is extremely high. Um, outside of our league, we're, we're a member of the Great Midwest Athletic Conference, and so that's 13 schools, uh, mostly in Ohio, some in surrounding states that make up that league. But even bigger than that, we're part of the Midwest Regional. And so how Division Two works is you play 30 regular season games, give or take, and then 
there's eight regions across the country and eight teams from each region go to the national tournament. So it's not the best 64 teams in the country going to the tournament. It's the best eight in that region. And so for us, the Midwest region is hands down the best region in division two women's basketball um, just because of the schools that are in it. So you have Ashland who won the national championship a few years ago and won an insane amount of number of games in a row. Uh, we had a chance to knock them off and, and dropped it at the buzzer. Hmm. So I, I still kick myself for that, but they're a fantastic team, fantastic program. Um, you have Drury University. They're in Missouri. They spent the entire year ranked as number one in the country in the same region. Grand Valley State up in Michigan is a top 10 program. Lewis University in Chicago is a top 10 program. So there you have four top 10 teams that are the top four teams in our region. So there's only four <laughs> spots then left for, you know, give or take 30, 35 other schools to get into the regional tournament. So uh, it is incredibly competitive to make it to the national tournament in and of itself is isn't it? It's just an incredible feat. We have the past two years, we were 24 and six, two years ago, 23 and seven this past year and did not make the national tournament. So I think that just speaks to, we've had such a level of success and still had our season cut short because the competition is so stiff. What you have in a lot of different places is because the schools are so different. Um, you know, some are smaller, Sometimes, so like for Cedarville being a niche school, we have a lot of Division One talent players on our team that either want the Christian community or they want the small campus or they want the distance from home that we have to offer. And so they elect to come play at Cedarville as opposed to a Northern Kentucky or a Miami or a Bowling Green or some school like that. And so in and of itself, certain schools like Cedarville that have a really tight niche attract really good players, and so those teams are always good. And I think Cedarville is a sweet spot for women's athletics in that regard. But then you also have, at the Division One level, girls that, for whatever reason, decide, I don't want to be here, and so they transfer down, and they always come into Division Two schools as well. So there's other schools that are just kind of like recycled Division One teams where they have a bunch of Division One players that stay for a year or two on their Division Two team. And so uh, it is night in, night out, a battle. It's not uncommon at all for Division II schools to go out and beat Division I schools in exhibition games. We actually did that two years ago. We went to Penn State and beat them on their home court, which was an awesome experience for me growing up in Pennsylvania and being a big Penn State fan. I think we would have been happy if, 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 if it would have been a 20-point loss for us, we would have been happy. And so for us to come out and, and beat them, we were ecstatic surprised happy and you know i think we've done it a lot of other schools do it it happens non-stop and that just speaks to the quality of play that we have at our level for sure nice so i've got i've got some i've got just a lot of questions purely out of curiosity because uh like i told you earlier i've, I've been involved in coaching but not at the level that you're at and and certainly a, a different track when you first got into it, were you more comfortable coaching defense or offense? That's a great question. I, I'm 100% more comfortable coaching offense. My mind is wired that way. Uh, here's, like, for example, this past year, we were the number one most efficient offense in all of Division II basketball. Um, and we were, out of 311 teams, like 280th uh, defensively. And so our team is like, you know, very, 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 very disproportionate in that regard. And we still won a lot of games, uh, but if we're going to kind of make the jump to the next level, we have to get better defensively. And so 
I know a priority for me has to be to think about defense the entire offseason. And I just catch myself all the time wanting to think about offense, wanting to think about offense. So I think I'm passionate about that. Um, I love that there's so many different ways to play on that end of the floor. And I think having a skill development background as well, so much of that is geared around offense. So I think all of that influences me to favor the offensive side of the ball for sure. Our players know that, that that's no secret at all um, when it comes to me, but I, I believe in balance for sure. I think you need to be good on both ends if you're going to be one of those top 15 teams in the country. So we're, we're working to get better on both. I think we have one end figured out for sure, but the other end still needs some work. <laughs> yeah, I was, when I got into coaching, it was the first level I coached was eighth grade girls and defensively I kind of knew how to create a system but it it took me a long time to develop a philosophy and how to how to get the five players playing together that 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 was a real hard one for me to get to for sure I think too one of the things that I think is important to do um you know I know you haven't asked me a question and here I am still talking so bear with me please but I think it's important to kind of analyze what's going to help your team, maybe your team or your school, however they're made up, what's going to help you win. And so some teams are definitely more defensive driven just through their personnel, just through the way their girls are wired. Some teams are more offensively driven. And I know for us, just the girls that we've been able to recruit um, have, for example, we this past year graduated a girl who was 5'4 on a good day. So at 5'4", it's hard to be a great defender because people can just kind of jump over you and shoot it. But she was the best shooter in all Division II basketball. I mean, she was absolutely unbelievable hmm. on that end. And so we have, we have a lot of players like her who might be a little bit undersized, and they bust their butt defensively for sure, but sometimes there's just physical limitations. So I think for us, focusing a ton on defense won't pay off a lot for us because our strength is, is the offensive side of the ball. We kind of want to soar with our strengths. So. Again, I think balance is important, but definitely, you know, maybe at, at younger levels, defense matters a lot because, you know, you have a lot of kids that maybe not be, may not be super skilled offensively, but they can help you on that end. And so I think just examining your team and kind of get, having being on what's going to help my team win this year, uh, that matters a lot. And then having a plan to keep the other end that's not so good, not be a threat from hindering you and keeping you from being successful. Yeah, the – Probably the biggest revelation I've had recently is when I've co- when this this past year I coached seven and eight, seven and eight year olds and last year when my son was seven didn't really do it that much but this year it was ball screen mm-hmm. and I think I got it from Brian McCormick who we talked about earlier because uh, he's such an expert in the motor learning and. Oh, yeah in the development that generally takes place. And I mean, it it just, it it hit me right between the eyes where it was kids learn how to dribble first. Mm -hmm. They learn how to dribble and they learn how to shoot. Their passing is rarely going to come off the dribble at that age. Right. Uh, If they're stopped and can, you could teach them to pivot. They, they can learn to do some passes, but, um, so the ball screen became big and this year when we did it and I just, I noticed a difference in, I, I probably had better players last year than this year, but we got more shots at the basket because at that level, if we could get a good ball screen, mm-hmm. we, 
that kid, that kid who was the designated dribbler was probably the one we had about four kids that were skilled enough to go to the basket and get a shot. So, but what happened is as with, as the year went on, help defense started coming over. Then they started learning how to jump stop and, and pass and, and do those things. And I, I still see kids that or coaches at that age. And then maybe the next two ages up trying to run pattern offenses and start with screens and off the ball. And they're just not there yet. Oh, absolutely. And so that, that, that was a big, big revelation for me. Uh, and then uh, I know something we had talked about was just the small sided games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really became, even before I came into Brian McCormick, I, uh, one of Ralph Miller's protégés uh, a couple of years ago. I don't know if you know Ralph Miller, but he he had coached in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, right. and uh, it was just basic stuff. It was one-four offense lined up across the foul line. Uh, but what really, even before that, what really got me interested was he was kind of a pioneer in the three-on-three, four-on-four, full-court stuff. Right, and his whole philosophy was. There's only one way for kids to learn basketball. They got to learn how to play it. Now he's an old farm guy. So he was very big into simplifying things, Mm -hmm. but that even when I was coaching the club teams at Miami, that became the focus was the three on three, the four on four full court. And, and that's been invaluable as I've filtered down in coaching, whether it's baseball or, or, or basketball, just being able to, get those small sided games and set up different scenarios. Not as many at the younger levels as I did like with the older kids, I would say, okay, so-and-so has to be, has to shoot unless you get a layup. Sure. But, but it was just that, that, that kind of small sided game stuff. Cause the, you have to have them, you have to introduce the motor skill, but at some point you have to get the defense there quickly or the kids just struggle. And, I think that's been my biggest development from that first time I told you when I was coaching eighth grade girls, it was a lot of skill development without a defender. And then you'll wonder in games, why is it not transferring over? Well, they're just not used to the going against defense. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember who, who did you interview in your podcast that you really talked about small sided games with, or I, I know it was, I know Brian McCormick was one. Right. Um, it could have been either Sethu Bernard or Tyler Costin. They both work with Point Guard College, and I know they're mm-hmm. they think along the same lines. I know they both helped me in that regard, kind of develop some different games and stuff that we use. Um, John Kessel, obviously, with the motor learning stuff, was help was very helpful in that regard, also. But I can't. I'm having a hard time thinking back through all of them right now as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another question I had for you. I I would say you lived in, I I would call them two different universes. You're a skill trainer. So I, I imagine you were perhaps just working with one player. How did you, because you see kind of what we're just talking about. You get, you see the kids that are great in the skill development one on one on O. How did you get them to be able to mesh into the five on five scenarios going against defenses? How how did you 
try to make your training as realistic as possible? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, th- I think at the end of the day, uh, it's not possible to, but you do the best you can with what you have. And so, like you said, I think when, you, when you're teaching skill, you know, I think anyone that's coached has shown a, you know, a player or a kid how to do something and it looks great. And then as soon as you throw a defender out there and things move faster, it all falls to pieces. So trying to think through, okay, how in this one-on-one session can I go ahead and add just some level of decision-making? Because um, I think if you remove decision-making from skill development, you're not, the skill development's not taking place. Um, but at the same time, you can't recreate the five-on-five games. So that's where a big thing that helped me uh, kind of make my drills or my training more game-like or add decision-making into it was Chris Oliver, who's a Canadian basketball coach at the University of Windsor, runs Basketball Immersion, which is a website. Um, and he has a whole system that he calls basketball decision training. And basically what that is, is me as the coach, and then let's say you are the player who I'm training, I'll throw you the ball, and then there's a series of cues that I can give to you. And so one of those might be I throw the ball to you, Ron, and if I put my hands behind my back and I stay still, you're going to go ahead and shoot the ball. But if I throw the ball to you and I put my hands in the air and step towards you, you're going to go ahead and drive the ball to the basket. So that's just training very you know, very much off the bat, that shot or drive decision. And so that's one thing that we use with our players just, just as a way to get warmed up because um, it's consistent with how we play. Like we want our players to catch the ball thinking I'm going to shoot it. And if they're not open and the defender's closing hard, we want them to immediately put the ball on the ground, either going right or left with the footwork that we teach and going from there. So that's really elementary, but that's one thing I did a lot. And then from there, you can add things more and more in as you like. So that could look like now I throw you the ball, and if I reach my hands out extended to you, you throw the ball to me and cut to the basket, and I give it back to you. So now we have another decision layered into it. Um, so I, I'll do a lot of that. And then the last thing that I'll do some of is, let's say I want to work on finishing at the basket. I might throw the ball to you, and if I put my hands in the air and step towards you, you're now driving it. But I'll, I will come and either decide, will I guard you and get in your way, or will I let you go? And so now our players are working on, if I have a straight line drive to the rim, I'm going to play off one leg, score as fast as I can. Or if my defender or a help defender steps in front of me, I'm changing direction and making a play with the opposite hand. So that's just kind of some things I can do one-on-one. And basically those ideas, uh, what I've done with them is like I saw Chris do that and I thought that's really good. And then you start seeing immediately like nine different ways you can apply that into what you do. So I'm trying to think of some decent ways. Um, and a lot of it just kind of goes together now. But whether that's, you know, we do it with forwards, we'll do it with guards. I'm just trying to make sure when you're in a one-on-o session and it's not, you know, fast and there's not a lot of interference there to still add decision-making into it. The downside to doing it that way is the cues you're still giving them are not what they're going to respond to in the game. So you're still not all the way there. Um, so what we would normally do or what I would try to do if I was training a player one-on-o is I would, let's say we're working on shooting, I would teach them, okay, here's how I want you to catch the ball with your feet. Here's, you know, the basic motor skill of what we're doing. As soon as I think that is adequate, now I'm going to add in the decision, do I shoot or do I drive? And so now you add in a little interference. And what that decision does basically is every time you catch the ball um, and you're going to shoot, there's really three things you have to do with any skill. The first one is you have to read like what's happening around me, um, how far I am from the basket, say with shooting. Then you have to plan to shoot 
and then you have to actually do the shooting motion. So reading, planning, doing, you're doing those three things every single time. And so if I'm just throwing the ball to you, Ron, and you're just shooting shot after shot after shot after shot from the same spot, you're only actually making that full loop of reading, planning, and doing on the first shot. And then after that, your brain knows the motor pattern and it's just the do, 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 do. But if I can add in that decision cue where now you're driving it, the next time you come back to shoot that shot or maybe drive based on the cue that I give you, you have to recreate the entire thing. So that's just a really small way that you can make it a little more game-like. And so then that would be the second phase is those decision cues. And then the third phase is to play live one-on-one. And so I try to do a lot of my training in small groups anytime I could. And if there wasn't a small group, then I was going to become the defender and work myself into a sweat. Um, just because I knew if the player is wanting to get better, even if I can't give them a great look on defense, what I'm going to give them is better than nothing. So I would always start in that one-on-oh, very small, just get it right. Then you add in the decisions and then you go live from there. Um, that's kind of how I approached it. And again, that looks like a million different things. I got to experiment a lot. Uh, that was the benefit to me working for myself is from three o'clock in the afternoon till 10 o'clock at night, I was in the gym with somebody. And so I got to try a lot of different things with a lot of different people and some of it stuck, a lot of it didn't. And I kind of what I have now, I think works really well for, for our players. And I know it's been really beneficial for us. There, I know that a lot of people that you've talked to and that we've referenced already, the block versus random practice, mm-hmm. What's your sweet spot in terms of consecutive reps of a, of a skill that you'll do before you alter it in some way? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I used to think of that subject very black and white, like block practice, bad, random practice, good. Um, but then I began to coach women and confidence is a really big part of, and not even just women, men too, any player confidence is, is such a big part of the game. And so I think, Block practice, which is just like I described earlier, shooting one shot from one spot again and again and again with no defender. That would be an example of that. Uh, while the transfer to the game is going to be very minimal, from a skill standpoint, I do think there's something to be said from a confidence standpoint. If that player is seeing the ball going into the net again and again and again, that's one of the things. The second thing I think is beneficial, and this is all just theoretical on my part. There's no science behind this. Um, but the, the other part is I think the player, if they have a routine that they go through every single day of shooting on their own, block practice, no interference, and they know that they're putting in that work, I think to a degree they feel like they deserve success, and that shows in their play through how hard they play and how much they want it. Um, we had a young woman on our team, the girl I referenced earlier, phenomenal shooter, led the country in three-point shooting, and every day, no matter what, she was going to make 100 threes. And she'd make 10 shots from 10 spots and move on. So it was block practice to a T. Um, and I, I kid you not, Ron, like if we, if we were leaving for a game at 7 o'clock in the morning for a 1 o'clock game to go travel, she'd want me to let her in the gym at 6 o'clock to shoot. Like that shit, that was her thing. And she, I think she was confident because she had that routine. And she 100% knew that when she shot, she deserved the success because of the work she'd put in. So um, I know I went on a tangent there, but the sweet spot then would be when we shoot and practice, we shoot a lot. Um, we just ch- we generally do drills that don't let them shoot from the same spot consecutively. So we'll do one drill. We call it 30 and three. You have three minutes on the clock. you got to make 33 pointers in that time. And the only rule is you can't shoot from the same spot twice. You have to move around. That way, again, you have to read, plan, and do on every single uh, 
rep. Or we'll say, okay, we're going to do 30 and three, but then we have the passer give that cue of am I shooting it or am I driving it? And we just kind of cycle through that way. So I think there is a, I think there is some value in, in block practice um, for confidence and for just the feeling of I deserve success. But again, I think when it comes to what we do with our team, there's always decision-making involved, even, excuse me, even in one-on-o drills just for making them move or making them do different things before they shoot. I know with my son, who's just a basketball nut right now, and it's really cool what I would call block practices. When we go to the gym, he's got to make 20 shots in a row with his middle finger on the air hole. Cause yep. he's a, he's a middle finger shooter. Cool. So that's, that's our version of block practice. Now he shoots from different spots, but he, he's very, I, I, I say be very deliberate about lining up your, putting your middle finger on the air hole, make sure your elbow is hitting your body when you go up and, and and that because then you know kind of to what my next point that that's kind of been another insight is then when we play whether it's one on one or or we do some one on one on zero stuff i can then ask questions rather than give direction because he's now learning how to solve it himself mm-hmm. how how important and how hard was it to, for you to start using one to two word cues and ask ask questions rather than directions because giving direction is pretty easy. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't know that I have that entirely figured out yet. Like I still find myself at times being very directive, but I think the first step for me um, in getting better that way was just being comfortable with who I am. I think whenever you know I was. 23 years old my first year at Cedarville coaching 22 year old women and so I felt like I had to talk a lot because I had to prove that I knew what I was talking about um and that's not really true I think players will trust you if they know that you can help them get better and a lot of times that's through what you do as opposed to how much you say so I think that's the first thing is just me being comfortable with who I am and time experience and you know, honest feedback too from from peers and mentors uh, is helpful there as well. And I know Carrie's great for me in that regard. Um, so that's the first thing. But then the second thing is, and I'll do it even now still, is I'll record myself in practice and I will listen to it back and just get a good gauge of, am I talking too much here? Why am I saying what I'm saying? Um, is is this beneficial? Um, am I just talking to talk or am I giving specific instruction? And so a lot of it, I think, comes down to how you structure practice. And that's where I think this has really helped me too is, you know, for you, working on your son with that middle finger, uh, putting on the air hole and shooting it and working on that. After you've kind of introduced that skill and you've worked on it, then when the game's going, you can very easily just rattle off quick little questions or you guys have your own cues for that. And I think... Like for us, we ball screen a ton. And so there is nothing more, um, what's the word, like relative than a ball screen possession. Like every possession looks different. You know, the spacing is never ideal or totally perfect. How you're getting played changes every possession. And so, you know, I think our first year doing that, I found myself talking to our point guards and being like, well, when this happens, then you do this. And when this happens, you do this. And when this happens, you do this. And you're like, it's just so much information. I'm not really helping them at all by doing this. And so then what we end up doing is similar to what you did with your son is you find a few good cues and that's really all you talk about. And so like for us with ball screen play, 
we've simplified it as much as if I'm the ball handler coming off the screen, before I use that screen, I want to look at the screener's defender. And if they're up at the level of the screen, I want to come off thinking I'm passing the ball because there's two people guarding me. And if they're dropped back in the paint, I want to come off thinking I'm going to drive this thing until I'm stopped and then I'll either shoot or pass. And so then all I have to say is, Ashlyn, was the big upper dropped? Boom. It's a quick question. It's easily done. Or she'll come off, and because we've been doing that a lot, she'll make a dumb play, and she'll say, need to attack with the dribble. The big was up at the level of the screen, or, you know, the big was dropped, or whatever the case may be. So I think by being – a lot of times that's done for us in film before we can get on the floor, um, talking through those things. And then when you get on the practice floor, you can quickly run through those things because they've been talked about, and you can figure out your cues from there. So – to plan a two-hour practice sometimes and to do it well takes a lot longer than two hours. Um, but ultimately, I think once you have that lingo down and those cues down, things just run for you. I, I was having this conversation with someone a couple weeks ago, and I asked them, I said, what, what are the one to two things that you think changed the game of basketball? And it was someone that was my age. You know, mid four, mid forties, and you know we kind of talked. They, she they talked about athletic ability, which I didn't argue with. Uh, but I, my thought was the ball screen and the three point line. Sure. Um, when I was coming, I I was actually in when I was in seventh grade was when Ohio first adopted the three point line, so I was the first group to go through it. But uh, just the way it's evolved and. and it's odd. I grew up in the Cleveland area and Mark Price was the master of the pick and roll, but we didn't do a lot of pick and roll in, in high school. Uh, very rarely. And oh God, I would have loved to do, I would have loved to play in that. I mean, the, I mean, the mentality was when we were growing up, if you're a good guard, you should be able to take your guard off the dribble one-on-one and <laughs> break them down. And gosh, it, the ball screen would have been so much fun. But we just didn't have it. Uh, you've you've talked about the ball screen, and you use it a lot. What do you think is the best defense against it? I, I've got some thoughts, but I wanted to ask you. Yeah, I, I think if you have a team that can athletically do it, if you can switch ball screens and not have a severe mismatch, that's far and away what gives our team the most trouble. Um, so if we run into a team, there's two teams in our league, that every player on their roster is literally five, ten to six foot. They're they're clones of each other. They look the same. They dress the same. <laughs> they walk the same, the same height. Um, like it, they switch screens, and you know you come off, and there's one player guarding the ball, and there's one player guarding the roll. And so those teams are really hard for us to play against. And you know even this summer, I'm just. I have a million thoughts of, okay, those two teams give us trouble. How can we go ahead and take advantage of that? And just some different things. So I think if you can do that athletically, that's a hundred percent the best way to do it for a team that probably that, that, that can't do that. Um, we, we call it a string, but basically it's a, it's a drop coverage where the screeners defender sits back in the paint. And then the girl who's guarding the ball handler is just super aggressive getting over the top. And basically what you're giving up there is a little pull-up jump shot. Um, and so the reason why I would do it that way is just because a lot of girls aren't good at shooting jumpers. They don't really practice them. They shoot layups. They shoot threes. 
and you know we talk about skills and context it's one thing to shoot a dribble or a jumper rather off the dribble when you're in the gym by yourself it's another thing when you literally have zero space and a girl breathing on your neck from behind trying to block that thing so that's just a tough shot and I think it it really too for the ball handler doesn't give them extreme clarity you come off and you're not sure if the roll's open you're not sure if you're open to keep driving everything's just kind of cluttered and congested and it forces that guard to be really patient and the guards who are really good in ball screens against teams that drop or string or whatever you call it are those guards who are really comfortable in that gap of free space and can almost like pause time and make that, that big girl, the screener's defender, decide, am I going to guard you or go guard the role? Our guards are phenomenal with that. We Like our one-point guard, she literally like hesitates, and I swear everything freezes in the gym, and she can go ahead and play from there. So teams that, teams that switch are, are what hurt us. But if I had a team that could not athletically switch – I think I'd go ahead and just try to drop. And if you're going to beat me off pull-up jumpers, so be it. But I'm not going to give you a kick-out three, and I'm not going to give you a lay at the rim. What are your thoughts on trapping hard? Because uh, obviously with, with seven- and eight-year-olds, we weren't doing that. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't supposed to double-team the ball. But uh, when I coached coach men's club, I always thought, I'd rather trap the ball. I'd rather trap it because not always, but generally, and this is obviously a huge change in the game too, is I'd rather have the big man catching the ball and trying to make ball handling decisions versus the guard. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, a lot of it just depends on the team that you're playing. Like for us, our, our big girl, our five, is a great passer. And so when teams trap or when teams hard hedge – like we, we salivate because she's just going to go ahead, take a dribble and make the right play and go ahead. Like we played Ashland this past year in the first game of the season. And I think we were up nine at half and they were either trapping or hard hedging all of our screens. And we were just throwing it to our five and she would take a dribble, get out and shoot a three. And then the second half, they started switching every screen and we had trouble with it. But I think just in, in college too, it's hard because, you know, ball handlers are really good. Yeah. And for us, with how we play, our best ball handlers are the ones in pick and rolls. So, like, they're just impossible to trap. They're slippery. They can make the right play. Um, and then, again, with our team, we have four girls on the, on the floor that can really shoot, so you have to guard all of them. So if you put two people on the ball, you're going to get burned somewhere else. But I know, like, for us, when we play teams that ball screen a lot, if they don't have a good shooter, we're way more inclined to be really aggressive because even then when we – put two on the ball and if the ball gets passed out of that trap we can rotate intelligently and not guard somebody and still be matched up so I think there's a lot of merit to it provided I just think it's all based on who the who, who that guard is and who that forward is like you said if, if the forward can't pass trap away um but mm-hmm. if they can if it's like a Draymond Green type player then I, I then I would definitely be I'd be wary but do you guys do you do you help do you help off a shooter on, on ball side or do you flood the backside with your help? We never help off a shooter. We, yeah. we call it helping off a single side. Um, we do a drill early every day where we practice balls being dribbled at you and you are running to your shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, we make a living because teams do that. Teams, it, It's just so hard not to. No matter how many times we drill, our girls still do it at times. Like right. the ball's dribbled. Everybody wants to make the right play and go guard it, and it gets kicked out. But we we stress it a lot. Where I think it's really hard to not do that is when the ball's dribbled directly down the middle third of the floor. 
Um, cause then there's really no clear cut help side. There's no clear cut ball side. Um, and so then it's like, if the player, let's say I'm dribbling with my right hand down the middle of the paint, the left side of the floor would be that weak side of that back side. But for me to come all the way over and help, it's almost impossible. So I think that's where we get burned with it a lot. And, you know, as a result, obviously we try to keep the ball out of the middle third of the floor when, when we're defending it. Cause that, that's, that's where a lot of bad crap happens, but um, yeah, we, I, I'll tell you right now, we don't, but if you watch us play, you'll see us do it. So, uh, I, I think, I think we're pretty disciplined there for sure. But, you know, again, I think it's just a natural reaction. So we, we emphasize not doing it, but it does occur sometimes. You mentioned pushing it to the side of the floor. Do you, do you ice ball screens at all? Do you ever try to flood it on the side? We, we don't, um, just because it doesn't fit well with our overall defensive scheme. Um, teams that can do it it's really effective there's a team in our conference that ices us every time we play them and that's all we talk about going up to the game and I think this year we we did a really good job against it but two years ago that gave us a lot of trouble um our teams were were more built to combat that now with our personnel too but I think if you're a team that you know really emphasizes keeping the ball on one side of the floor and you deny passes that might go back to the top of the key um, then it makes a lot of sense to ice ball screens because your your feet when you're guarding the ball are already positioned to almost ice it. So it's more work to not. But for us, we kind of guard more straight up. And so for us to ice the screen and then even with our – the other thing that icing does is it, it puts you into rotations. Um, so let's say I come off the ball screen and the five is below me. The guard is above me and we throw it to the five. Then we have to go ahead and start rotating and – the ball again it's a back in the middle third of the floor and it's just I'm not very comfortable with that um I don't think it fits our team well but again teams that can do it and teams that are committed to it I've seen it work very well very well yeah so correct me if I'm wrong because maybe I'm just getting old and crusty it seems like and of course I'm always saying this because I told you the we we were more growing up side to side motion offense versus getting downhill. Is it me? Is it just me or are players not very good at rubbing shoulders on screens? It, I, I see it in games often. It drives me nuts. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say you're accurate. Like we talk a lot for our screen or even on our ball screens. Um, like we don't really want to set it at a certain angle. We just ask her, to catch the front foot of the girl who's guarding the ball. So basically her front leg should be in the middle of, of, of your body. Um, and it does, you know, again, it's hard cause like they're moving. And so you got to go hit a moving target. That that's difficult. Um, but I, I think a lot of it too, just comes down to players are antsy to be patient, whether you have the ball or to be patient when you don't have the ball and to be waiting for a screen you know, if you can pause and make your defender be a stationary target to get hit, then rubbing shoulders is going to happen a lot more. But whenever, you know, even a lot of coaches too will teach you, if you're going to get a screen, you need to walk them in. You need to, you know, but then you're like, the defender's already moving. Like why not just stay, make the defender stay and then we can come hit them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, I, I have a few different thoughts there, but I, I think it's just hard to do because of, you know, like you said, I think a lot of it comes back to, well, how is it practiced? A lot of it's practiced in perfect environments where it's, I know I'm going to go screen Ron. 
But then in the game, I throw the ball to you, and now I'm like, okay, I don't know who I need to go hit. A thousand things are happening. That's totally different. And so I think part of it's patience on the cutter, part of it's practicing in a game environment, and part of it is just people don't like running into people naturally, I don't think. like. <laughs> right. So I, th- I think all of that probably goes into play there. Yeah, that's probably true. Because I, not like I said, we we haven't done this yet. But when I was describing it to my son, I said, I said, do you guys ever play the game on the playground where you, when you're playing tag and you try to have someone run in, person that's chasing you run into a tree? And he just laughed at me. I, I said, well, that's what it is. <laughs> I mean, you've got to set and cut up and do different things and, and try to get him to run into a tree. Uh, so that's what we always talk about with screens. Oh, definitely. And then the other one, and again, maybe this is just because I'm old and crusty, defenders jumping to the ball after their offensive player passes. I hardly ever see it. It drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. And especially at, especially girls, because there aren't alley-oops a lot of times where that person's going to cut to the basket and get an alley-oop for a layup. I I just, I don't see it happen very much, and it just drives me crazy. Yeah, I think a few things, I think, with that, like, we're not great at it either. Um, I think a good chunk of it comes down to, like, how you defend. I think a lot of teams that we play, whenever, you know, I'm off the ball and pass away, I'm not out denying, but I'm sitting back in a gap. A lot of teams do it to us because of how much we play downhill. Mm-hmm. And so when that is the... So now the coach is emphasizing to that player, you need to be below the level of the ball. And so I think a lot of players' first reaction now, just because of what's emphasized when the ball's passed, I'm jumping backwards so I can get below the ball, I can get that depth, as opposed to jumping sideways first and then getting themselves back. And so mm-hmm. I know like we struggle with that a lot, um, just because like, our girls' first move is always to pop back, always to pop back, always to pop back. And then you do get face cut sometimes. So I think – probably as the game has become more of a north-south driving game and gap defense has become more prevalent, I think that probably lends up to it as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So I had a general question for you because, again, I'm, thank you for your patience with me because I'm, yeah. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think about how I, how I process things. You're obviously a learner. You, you like to pick a lot of brains. What's your sweet spot in getting all this information and then putting it into your system that you're coaching? Because you yeah. can you can easily get overloaded and ambitious and and not do things well. Absolutely, I, I think experience and just time has really helped me there. Because I I, w- I would tell you like two two to three years ago, every idea I heard was the best idea I've ever heard, um, and so. I think personal experience has really helped me in that regard. And so here's what I mean. I'm just going to use offense as an example. Um, Davidson College, their men's team runs a really beautiful pattern, not even pattern, but just motion offense where all, is. Is all, <laughs> all people are curling, people are slipping. And I watch that and I think, my word, that's beautiful. I would love our team to play that way. Um, and then you watch a team like Villanova, their men's team two years ago when they won the national title, and they ball screen a lot. And they're driving, kicking the ball, making extra passes. It's popping around the key, and you think, my, that's really beautiful. I really like that. And then, you know, same thing defensively. And so I think – and because I'm curious and I want to learn a lot of different things, 
you know, I think for a long time, I didn't have a system for myself and I didn't have anything that I really believed in. And what I needed to do to kind of make those things happen was just to be around my own team for a little bit and to be around my, you know, to have things turn out badly, to have things that turn out well. Um, and so going back to the offensive example, my first year at Peterville, we ran a passing style motion offense where we were, you know, I don't want to say cluttering up the floor, but like a lot of our action off the ball was inside the three-point line. And t- we turned it over a ton because teams would just switch, get out and deny, or the girl who's holding the ball trying to read the screens getting mobbed by somebody else. And um, we, we didn't score a ton of points that way. And we were just very reactive and teams that could get into our shorts really gave us trouble. And so now I'm thinking to myself, well, that beautiful Davidson, offense that I saw I don't know if I like that because one player has the ball doing nothing for a really long time and if they do decide to drive it to the basket well now like my own teammates a defender because they're in the paint screening and they're in my way and I don't know how to play Um, and so from there what we ended up doing was every time we had a lot of pressure we would just bring our five out to ball screen and tell everybody else to space the floor and so then my second year at Cedarville we decided well that's what we do whenever we're in trouble and when we need to score, let's just do it the entire game. And so then from there, you know, there's a million variations of ball screen motions that teams run. And so that whole entire summer, I'm like, okay, I think we're going to play this way. I like this. But then, you know, you learn something else and you try to synthesize your experience versus what you're learning. And basically what you end up doing is you morph, you kind of morph everything into your own system and it takes a long time. And so, the way we play right now, I would say, is probably the simplest offense in Division Two basketball, like the core of what we do. There's things that get complex, but like just the actual base, bare bones of our offense can't be any easier. But to get to that point as like in designing it, it took a long time to get there because you're synthesizing a lot of information and experimenting and adding and subtracting and the other thing I think that like we're not afraid to do, Carrie and I, is we change stuff with our team all the time. Like, as the year goes on, we'll add stuff and take stuff out, and we're not at all afraid to do that. You just have to kind of be evaluating why you're making the change, and, you know, you don't want to have hindsight bias and be super reactive and or recency bias, rather. But uh, I think that's been the biggest thing for me is, like, I've I've learned a lot of things. I've done a few things. What's worked really well, I've kind of adapted, and I know what I like, and now everything I learn gets filtered into that gets filtered into that. So that's just been my, it's not a, it's not a clear system and I apologize for that, but I think that's kind of how things have happened for me. And uh, I know I like where I'm at right now as opposed to where I've been, but I don't think I'd be here if I didn't do what I did initially. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I, I don't live in this world like you do, but so I just hear bits and pieces What's the most ridiculous NCAA compliance rule that you've had to follow? <laughs> um, man. I mean, that's a big book you've got there. No, it's too big. It's, <laughs> uh, he gets tired of me probably asking him questions. Um, one would be, and this was my fault, so I don't at all fault our school or the NCAA, but on signing day, um, you know, you have athletes that are committed and they go ahead and sign to accept financial aid, their scholarship. And then when that happens, you're allowed to talk to them. Anytime you see them, you're allowed to post about them or interact with them on social media. 
all those things can take place. And so we always announce the signees on our social media after they go ahead and sign. Um, but one of the rules for the NCAA is after they've signed, the letter has to get, excuse me, faxed or mailed to the school and then get verified by the compliance office before you can do any of those things. And so this past year I got a violation because we tweeted about a player who had signed before the letter had gotten verified. And so even though nothing happened and there was no violation, it was still a violation. So that's just the rule where I'm just like, of all the things I know that go on, right. nothing changed. I think it's silly, but at the end of the day, you know, again, it was, it was my fault. I did not see out all the people I needed to before I did, but um, I would say that's pretty silly. <laughs> so and at, at some point you're going to be a head coach. I can, I could tell what, what's your ideal system of play. If you had, if you had the athletes that you wanted at, at one through five on the floor, what kind of style would you like to play? Yeah, I think offensively we play exactly how our, our team at Cedarville plays. Um, I, I ball screen a lot, ideally. Um, I think I'm not comfortable at all with like sprinting and flying up and down the floor and, and playing frenetic in transition. Um, I think I like our offense to be run crisply and quickly, like ideally on a 30 second shot clock started with 25 seconds left. Um, so I don't think I'll, I'll coach a team that like every time a coach gets hired at the press conference, they say, we're going to play fast. We're going to run, but none of them actually mean it. I don't, I hope I wouldn't say that because I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't mean it. Like we, we don't want to lollygag and get the ball up there, but I believe in pe- playing with pace in the half court um, more so than I probably do in the full court, just because I'm comfortable with that. But uh, so I think we'll shoot a lot of threes. I think we'll you know drive the ball to score, kick it out, make the extra pass, play unselfishly. I think we'll do all of that. Um, and then defensively, you know, I, I I don't know. I think I'm still. You talk about learning and making a system and synthesizing. Like I'm still in the process of trying to figure out what I believe in, what I know works best and and what I want to hang my hat on. Uh, I do think that good defenses do exactly the opposite of what you're trying to do on offense. And so I think, you know, the general answer I'll I'll give you is like defensively, I think it's really important to decrease the amount of time the offense has to work with. Part of that's done for us because of a shot clock Um, to decrease the amount of space they have to, to work with and then to decrease the amount of options they have available to them. So if you can do those three things defensively, you're really hamstringing an offense. There's a lot of ways to do that. Um, and again, I think a lot of it depends on your personnel and then a lot of it depends on what you're comfortable with giving up and, and, and kind of allowing. So I don't have a good enough answer for you there on that side of the ball, but offensively, I think it would look like that. And then I would hope that the team I coach is just full of the nicest, most res- respectful people you've met. Um, you know, I think hopefully it would be a team that when they arrive, they're saying hello to people. When they leave, they're saying thank you to people. When a call is made good or bad, they're handing the ball to the ref. They're talking to our team, not the other team. Uh, I think there's a lot of value in treating people like they're important and treating them really well. And I hope my team would do that as well. Hmm. Yeah. The, there was one year I coached women's club at Miami and we did the Grinnell style. Oh, that's fun. It, it, it was fun. Cause we had, we had 14 girls. It was the first year for the club. And then we had a few players drop off second semester. So we didn't do it anymore. Uh, but 
we had a we had a guard that was about five one, and she's still the only she's the only girl I've seen that could throw baseball passes off the dribble. That's awesome. And, and for as small as she was, it amazed me. But she she was an awesome trigger person, and we we had a couple games where we scored over a hundred points, and that was throwing it. It was an adjustment for them because they're all oh yeah coming from high school where they're playing almost the entire game. Uh, but that, that's the only team I've ever done it with, but right. it's an intriguing style. Because <laughs> you said it's up and down. And uh, if you, it, 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 what's, what's amazing about Grinnell is how structured they are. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, they're obviously playing with pace, but God, I mean, the, the stuff that they do to get the shots that quick is pretty awesome. Right. Oh, it's, I, I enjoy watching it. And that there is a system that like, I wrote Coach Arsenault when I was in high school, and he sent me stuff, and I loved it. And now I don't think I could ever tolerate playing that way. Not because I, you know, I think it's fun to watch, but I just know with my personality, it wouldn't be a good fit. I think it would drive me crazy. But there's applications where it could be really good, and I think the club setting is one where you where you want to play everybody and where you want to make yeah. it fun. I think there's no better way to do than yeah. that. I've often wondered if if even in like a high school program that just doesn't have any tradition and. I mean, just to try to get interest going. If you're going to lose by 30, lose lose 90 to 60 versus 60 to 30. Right, totally. Yeah. yeah. So to wrap up, how can people learn more about you? Yeah, the, uh, the biggest thing I'm active on online is Twitter. And my handle is at John, J-O-H-N, underscore, Leonzo, L-E-O-N-Z-O. Um, I tweet a lot of videos about like what our team's up to, how we play. Um, from there, there's a link in my bio to my website, which is leonzobasketball.com. I'm in the process right now of actually redoing that. So it's what I have up and running right now. Hopefully won't be there in a month. Um, but I'm trying to simplify that a little bit and kind of streamline everything, but that would be those two. And then I have a lot of videos on YouTube as well. Uh, fewer now I had to take a lot of them down due to copyright issues. But, um, if you just search John Leonzo into YouTube, you'll find a lot of information there as well. So there's those three, um, to get in contact with me, I'll give my email out here. It's J L E O N Z O at cedarville.edu. Uh, I'm more than willing to talk basketball with anybody to answer questions and I, I, I love doing it. So, uh, feel free to reach me on there. That's always a great way to get in touch, or you can message me on Twitter, anything like that. So Twitter's what I'm on most. Uh, those that know me know that I love it, and I love sharing on that, but email's not bad either. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds good. Well, I'll, I'll put all those in the show notes for the awesome. audience. Thank you. And uh, I'd, I'd like to reach out to you again at some point. I'd like to come watch you guys practice. Anytime. Yeah, that'd, that'd be fun, and, and, and bring my son, of course. Uh, the one that's really into it, my the younger ones getting there, but <laughs> not quite yet. So, uh, but yeah, the, the eight year old can't get enough right now. So, you guys are always welcome. Anytime they want to come up, just let me know, and we'll definitely make it happen. Okay. Well, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohio Show. This was episode sixty eight with Coach John Leonzo from Cedarville University. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great day. This was awesome.
Yeah. Well, thanks so much for doing it. I'm, I'm more than happy to, to help out and I'm very thankful for, for the opportunity for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll uh, usually probably by tomorrow or so I'll, I, I create a blog post with the, with the audio and, and everything else. So I'll, I'll send all that to you. Very cool. I really appreciate it, Ron. And again, anything I can do for you, just shoot me an email or you have my cell number. So give me a call or a text and we'll definitely connect. Likewise. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks, John.